Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with expert emotional eating coach Jonathan McLaren. This man survived an attempted murder after nearly being beat to death in South Africa, as well as losing his life savings in a failed business venture. From there, he rebuilt himself from the ground up. He lost and kept off over 100 pounds after many failed attempts. He used to suffer from multiple anxiety episodes per day and now has less than two notable episodes per year after some dramatic lifestyle changes. These days, he can teach people how to lose 50 to 80 pounds and reverse engineer their own healthy lifestyles without diets. He's got a great story. He's a great cat. Enjoy this interview. Joe, how are you, man? What's up, man? How you doing? Man, I'm doing fantastic. And I have to say, I, I, I've really enjoyed listening to your interviews because you ask fantastic questions and I'm probably going to go and listen to more of them oh, cool, to get... Man. To, to draw from, I, I do an interview style podcast as well. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to like, you, you ask some really thoughtful questions that I, I would love to ask people as well. So I'm, I'm going to learn from you. Well, I appreciate that. And you know, I kind of, I've always been in journalism, but I'll tell you the moment where I really thought if I had to put my feet to the fire and this actually happened back in my twenties, we used to all hook up at a coffee shop. I'm in a Kansas city. I'm in Kansas city now, but I was in a suburb called Liberty and we'd all sit around and a friend of mine came to me and said, there were some people that drove to Kurt Vonnegut's front doorstep to have coffee and cigarettes with him. And they came up with these questions. What would be your five questions? And I've always thought about that. Like, if I only had a certain amount of questions for people, like you really got to get in there and fight the good fight. So I've always really kind of thought about that. And that's been the bee in my proverbial bonnet. So, no, I, I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to digging into your life and um, I, I love the ocean scene back there. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I wish it was real. I'd like to tell people I have the secret location in, in Alberta, Canada, where I'm from, where there's some, some ocean. But uh, yeah. we, we have to settle for the gorgeous Rocky Mountains in our backyard instead. Well, I we can't even do that here. I mean, we don't have I mean, I'm in the middle of, of America. So everything's kind of man made and it's just flat. So it, yeah, it, yeah, the prairies. Texture. What's like, that? It's like this, like our prairies here. So yeah. to, to eat east is like flat. Like if I start to start driving east, it's flat for like probably the same thing until you get uh, through Northern Ontario and you get like above Michigan and whatnot, you know? So, uh, cause I guess you, you'd, you'd probably hit the Appalachians if you go east eventually. And then you hit the Rockies when you go west, but between there is just like a, a plateau of sorts. I think it used to be an ocean, uh, especially like I'm in the Missouri side, but in Kansas, it just was a big ocean. So, um, I guess that's our only oceanic claim to fame, so to speak, really. Yeah. You know? Now, I, looking at your background there, it looks as though that's a shape of the United States. Is that correct? Yes. That's my logo for the show. Yeah. Amazing. And and that little blue tip there is like Ontario. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I actually painted that about a year ago, and it was just supposed to be an outline of the United States. And my wife saw it and was like, oh, man, I have to have that for my class. She's a fifth grade teacher. Okay. So I just got into rebranding and I'm like, I think that works. So I just kind of went with it. So that's, that's, that's fabulous. Yeah. So that's how we arrived at today. But I, I got to tell you up front, I love the Canadians and I love that you have socialized health care. I love talking to musicians because the government always gives money. There's <laughs> and, and even after the big gun incident in America with New Mexico last year, you know, Trudeau responded and started rolling back uh, things about guns. You guys always respond, but it happens in America and we don't respond. It's weird. It's like, I, I just, I, I, 
always admire the Canadian spirit. And there's so many things that you do that's logical and makes sense to me. I, I would I would agree. Uh, there's a lot of U.S. cities I wouldn't want to live in. Um, and, if, and look, if I lived in the U.S., I would have definitely owned a gun. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, it, um, now, and, and the one thing that this sort of like, I think we're, but we're seeing an upsurge in like knife crime and that's, wow. and it's, 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 there's something kind of troubling about it and because it's happening a lot on like public transit. Um, it's happening in the bigger cities. I live in a smaller city, thankfully. Yeah. Um, but it's not a lot you can do about that. Right. It, yeah. Well, I, I say there's not a lot. Here's, here's what I think the real problem is. The real problem is the, is the un, untreated mental health crisis that we are, we are suffering with to a massive degree. Um, just, not just in like like Canada or, or the U.S., but like around the world for so many different reasons. That's that'd be like a whole another <laughs> right another bomb bomb to open up. But I mean, I think until I think we should normalize therapy, and until we do, uh, we're going to continue to see these sorts of these sorts of issues. Well, and that's a part of what we're going to get into with your life. You know, dealing with emotions and dealing with you know the mm. kind of the mental state of us. And before we get into that, one of the biggest determinants of that in our modern world has been COVID. How did you survive that three year period and how, how has it changed the way that you do things now? Well, I was actually really fortunate. Uh, call us fortunate. I had a bricks and mortar nutrition and supplement store and that business failed two years before COVID. That left me basically in financial room with a mountain of debt. And so I had to, I just thought, well, what am I, what am I going to do with this? And I, I, I felt like I just couldn't go back to being an employee. Uh, I, I I have an entrepreneurial spirit, and this isn't to knock anyone who's an employee. Very few people are really genuinely cut out to survive entrepreneurship. It's up and down. It's it's like hard. But I, I launched my own like online nutrition coaching business. It was like I I I know this is what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about connecting with people, and so I kind of started with a social media account and telling people, hey, this is what I do. So by the time COVID rolled around, I've been working from home for for two years, and we were really fortunate. My wife was able to go was on mat leave. Um, and my son was born. It was this really interesting bubble where like, and my son was born during the pandemic. We were like this little three person family unit living in, in our house. And uh, we got a ton of time with my little boy. It was so amazing, and incredible. My wife is from Australia. We hadn't, we just came back from two months in Australia. We hadn't been back for four years. And so she hadn't seen her family for four years. But we had we had like a group WhatsApp call every week with her family, and we probably communicated more with her family when we weren't able to travel because we're like, boy, we really need to be in touch with each other because normally we'd go back to Australia every year. And so uh, I I was I didn't get laid off. My wife it was on mat leave, and so I'm I was incredibly fortunate, really. Yeah, that's wonderful, man. So let's get to the essence of what you do. I want to put mm. you in front of a bunch of grade school kids, third graders. <laughs> Okay. So one of them looks up and says, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that child? And I heard you ask this question in the previous interview and I was like, darn, he's going to ask me that question. That's right. I, I help people understand themselves better. Now that seems like a really interesting answer for a nutrition coach, but we, we do things and we often don't understand why we do it. And we do things that hurt ourselves and we don't understand why we do it. Well, I, I help people to understand why they do that so we can change their behavior and they can be healthier. It makes total sense to me. As someone that's tried to maintain weight and, and do healthier things, there's a lot of food that we eat that comes from different emotional mm. places in us. We just don't need that much and yeah. we, we need it in better quantities. Just before this, I was speaking with a client of mine and we talked about how, so one, one of the tools we might use is calorie counting, for example, and it's, 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 it's debated thing, a bit debated tool, but essentially 
if we only ever ate unprocessed whole foods, we wouldn't have to ever do that. But processed foods are made in a way that bypasses our brain's regulation mechanism, essentially. So we really can't, we really can't calculate or understand how much we're eating, but it's incredible. In Canada, we have these little donuts called Timbits, you know, donut holes, and they're like a hundred calories each. You could eat 10 of them and it feels like you're barely scraping the bottom of your stomach and you've eaten a thousand calories. Like yeah. boom, for, that's like half of someone's daily intake and you, you don't even feel like you've scratched the surface of eating. And that's the world that we live in. Like, so it's, it's, and we live in, and just to sort of tie it up, we also live in a very emotionally stressful world, very different than our grandparents or great grandparents and so on. But the age of digital technology, it's amazing. Look at us chatting like this today, yeah. but it's also, it gives us access to unprecedented and even overwhelming levels of information and, and overwhelmingly negative information, which yeah. creates a level of emotional stress we haven't seen before. Well, one of our emotional anesthetics is food. The others being alcohol, drugs, video games, pornography, all these other vices that we might have, but they're, I call them emotional anesthetics. Yeah, absolutely. You're totally right. So you, your, your backstory is crazy. You, you <laughs> almost got murdered. You know, yeah. there, there's all these things, but let's go back to where you were born and raised and these seeds that were planted in you, because you're not yeah. just going into a job and doing your thing and getting a paycheck. You're emotionally helping people. How did these seeds get into you to grow into who you are? Well, this is really fascinating. I was born at 26 weeks. Um, I was an accident in multiple senses of the word. Um, I was a failure of 1980s birth control. My parents were hoping for a daughter because they already had a son. And I was, I came, so I was an unexpected pregnancy and I came at 26 weeks and I wasn't expected to live. Uh, so I spent the first nine weeks of my life on life support in a neonatal intensive care unit. Now that's a really interesting background because when we think about a child, normally a child spends so much time in the first days of their lives in skin to skin contact with their mother. That didn't happen for me. It wasn't possible. Now, the nurses, they liked me and they would have come and, and so on, but I didn't get that level of attention. What that actually fostered was this really interesting level, probably for my parents, sometimes frustrating level of independence, where I was always trying to do things without their help. I wanted to figure out how it worked. I wanted to do it myself. And they would just sometimes throw their hands up in despair and be like, all right, kid, you're determined to do this the hard way. I'm going to let you do it the hard way. And, but that seemed to be this, <laughs> lay the foundation. You know, I mean, my parents, they're loving parents. They're still together 44 years later. They now just live around the block from us, which is amazing. Um, but it was, that was really what laid the seeds for me. Like I struggled to be an employee because I'm far too stubborn and like independent minded to really stick within the confines of, of traditional employment. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about you, that story that you just said right there. One, uh, so when the pandemic happened, I have a jazz radio show and I ramped mm. up a lot of my interviews and I was going after a lot of people that typically wouldn't be able to interview like legends. Like it was, yeah. The time so Amazing. I, yeah. So I got on the phone with a legend. Her name is Diane Schur and she's partially blind mm. and she's in her home. And I think her cat had a weird, I can't remember the cat's name, but the cat kept coming up to the phone and she kept apologizing. I said, look, it's the pandemic, birds and airplanes and anything that come in here is all fair game. We're fine. <laughs> so she's percolating coffee, waking up. And I said, how are you doing? We were about four weeks into this, maybe five weeks. We didn't know what was going on. You know, the beginning of the pandemic, mm -hmm. it was around spring break in the States. And we're all like, yeah, when this is over with, maybe a week after that, we'll get back to it. It was unprecedented. So I'm asking her, how are you doing? And she lived alone and she said, I right now feel like the way I felt when I was born. She was born prematurely. And back in the day that she was in kind of a, a tube, so to speak. And the oxygen was so heavy 
that's what degenerated her eyesight. But when she told me she felt like mm. she did when she was a baby, I, I have all of the comments that I got from people and there were some fantastic things going on. You know, cats that moved from New York to Costa Rica, packed it all up and left. Yeah. And, you know, just amazing stories. But when she told me that story, it's just like you're talking about like what that did for you and ultimately what it did for her. It gave her probably a level of fight and because she didn't have the eyesight that she maybe would have had if she wasn't incubated in that mm-hmm. level of oxygen. So anyway, when you said that it immediately came to mind, it was fascinating. Well, interestingly enough, uh, I was almost legally blind. I, I had correct. Thankfully I was able to get corrective eye surgery and yeah. uh, now I'm, I probably just a little bit less than 2020 20 after years later, it sort of degenerates a little bit, but I mean, I don't need glasses. And so, but as a kid, I had to have these Coke bottle glasses, like, Hubble telescope coming attraction, you know, like, and yeah. oh man, kids are merciless. <laughs> oh man, they're awful. Yeah. So speaking of kids, we're going to come back around. When you were in the third grade, what was your dream growing up? What'd you want to be? Oh, I, I thought I wanted to be a chef actually. Okay. Uh, so, okay. and my, my parents to their credit actually fostered that. So they got me into the kitchen, got me learning how to cook and learning how to do recipes. We were cooking from the, oh, I think there's like Jean Perret Companies Coming Cookbook Series. Any like anyone from like a child of, I don't know, forties or fifties or sixties, they might know the cookbooks I'm talking about, the old school. And, and so they got me into that. And then it turned out by the time I was about 14, I was like, I don't, I don't like cooking anymore. Yeah. And I want to do something different. I wanted to be like a, a pro athlete. Um, but uh, yeah, I wanted to be a chef. Yeah, I never, ever really was taught how to cook. You know, we were kind of the product of uh, pop culture 80s, TV dinners and all of that standard stuff. And I had a, a girlfriend at one point that said, you will never forget me because I'm going to teach you how to cook. And mm. the key that I got out of that is don't be afraid to add ingredients and spices and oh, get man. as dirty as you can. Just destroy <laughs> that kitchen. <laughs> My wife is 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 like the the queen of like destroying the kitchen and creating something amazing. Like where I'm 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 quite minimalist, and so I, I cook and I do a lot of it's a lot of bachelor style cooking. Um, but I, I'm like if I can fit it all into one pot and make it taste good, like I'm game. Like yeah, that, that's that's it. yeah. Until it comes to cooking steak, man, I, I wanna I wanna be very I'm very fastidious about how I would cook a steak. Absolutely. Well, I've learned recently that. Um, I really enjoy leftover mishmashes and yeah. I don't even want to tell you what I just did for lunch today. Cause people would be scratching <laughs> their head, but it was tasty. It was like broccoli soup, some uh, butter noodle pasta and some breaded chicken. And it just all came together. Oh, and worked. So I'm, so I'm like a, a breakfast rebel. I call myself. Yeah. And, and so I eat things people, you eat that for breakfast. I'm like, why not? We eat other times a day. Like the, the concept of breakfast foods is a, it's like only maybe 150 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Like before that. So, cause my brother lives in Turkey and so they're a much older culture than we are. And you go to the Mediterranean and you go to have breakfast and yes, there's bread there, but there's like slices of cheese, there's slices of meat, there's like peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers and onions. Like that's their breakfast. It's not yeah. this sugar laden cereal. Uh huh. Yeah. It's weird too with Chinese food. I've heard mm. that when you go to China, what, what we do here for Chinese food is not accurate. No, not even <laughs> close. But it's, it's the same. Uh, you could look at like Indian food. Well, we get primarily Indian food, uh, or we would call it East Indian food, I guess, to differentiate. But you primarily get food that we cooked like in the Punjab region. But India is like this Im- incredible diaspora of cultures and countries. Like it's like, you know, a hundred countries packed into one. And so 
the difference that you get and same with Italian. Like I lived in Italy for seven months and North to South, man, it is totally different. So the thing that we think is Italian food is, is, is laughable to them. I was just telling somebody today, we were talking about nine 11 and I was in the back of a water taxi in Venice, Italy on nine 11. Okay. And, and, and I had a fight to get back home and cause my flight to Paris didn't exist anymore. It was a long story, but I remember I was, I went to visit a pen pal and um when i went over there they were just howling at the book i had because i you know we didn't have smartphones i had a book right. all the terms they grabbed that thing and they're like oh they, they they were crying looking at this thing <laughs> and then like the second night her dad i'm sitting there eating my food and he just couldn't take it anymore he couldn't really speak english and he just slammed his silverware down and he said a spete and he just said just look at me and he grabbed the silverware and he started twisting it and he said there you go and i always admired that he did that because he couldn't watch it anymore i'm fumbling things were flying it was bad you know the what i loved about living in italy because he probably it was a name like domino i'm guessing maybe you do have some italian heritage full-blooded that's what he was thinking he was like this kid his dad's full-blooded italian from brooklyn why is he eating pasta like this right right that's that's just it so they uh, i was a hit over in italy weirdly i'm I'm like a ginger bearded for those who are listening i'm like ginger bearded blonde guy but i was a hit in italy because i have such a love for food and so i had such appreciation because they would want it when we're over there they, they want to prepare like the lo- local dishes. So there's this amazing dish that almost nobody over here knows about called pizzaccheri. Yeah. And, and if you ever want to have a really like heart attack in a dish, but it's so like hearty and satisfying and filling, learn how to make pizzaccheri. And they, they normally only make it in the winter because it's made with like butter and heavy cream and cheese. And it's just, I, I don't, it's, it's incredible. Like imagine melting a pound of butter and pouring that hot butter over this pasta dish that has layers of noodles and cheese and, and the hot butter melts the cheese. And wow. oh, it is just, I'm like, I'm already like salivating thinking, but, <laughs> but they made it for me in the summertime because like, we want you to experience this. We want you to know that we know how much you love food. And, uh, and I was, I was a little bit bigger at the time as well. And, and of course they're always like, ah, oh, Hey, you're a growing boy. I'm like, I'm 30 years old. I'm not actually <laughs> right. That's their thing. That's, that's what happens in Italian families. They're like, are you full? Yeah. Well, you got a little room. That's, that's, oh, what yeah. And the other thing is just how they would eat in, in, um, like courses. Yes. Like the thought of mixing pasta with meat, like we don't do that. What are, no. are you insane? No, 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 no. You have like the, the antipasti comes first and then like the salad comes and, and, and maybe the noodles come and then comes like a tray with like some meats and cheeses. And then, and then you have a little bit of gelato and they just, they take their time with Absolutely. their meals. Oh, it's an experience. So, cause we were, we were like running English camps over there. So that's kind of, I was a supervisor coordinating a whole bunch of English camps. And, and so then I would get put up in like host families from place to place all over Italy, which it was just incredible. It was like living the dream and all yeah. these Italian mamas who just like loved like cook and, and I love to eat food. I must, I probably gained weight over there too, but I got to experience so much of like the, the real Italian culture versus yeah. like kind of what we, what we imagine over here. And I would say I've, I've been to 45 countries and. Italy and Iceland would be the top of my list. Italy for its culture and Iceland for its landscape. Yeah, my best friend, my son, Miles, his godfather, went to Iceland to see the Northern Lights last November. And man, he showed me shots from over there. Mm. And just, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, thankfully, we live far enough north that we, we don't see them regularly, but like probably a couple times a year we get to see them. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's it's quite something. Like the sky, like it's like the shimmering green light in the sky. Like it doesn't even make sense. It's crazy. It's just gorgeous. 
the, for some, it happened accidentally here about a month, month and a half ago. And That's right. People didn't even know about it. And I'm like, I always miss that. I always miss the really good earth events. Like there was a yeah. earthquake in Oklahoma years ago and I was asleep. There's all these things that happen, and I just like I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, so uh, just a little bit less than a year from the date of recording this, so April 2024, um, maybe like April 15th or 16th, there is going to be a total. I think it's a total lunar eclipse, so middle of the day where the the moon passes in front of the sun and blocks the sun out from the Earth, and it'll last yes. for about four minutes. I've already put that on my calendar because I didn't know what was going to happen. So I literally booked the day off Yeah, because it's something that it's, it's a rather unique event in history. And I'm like, dang it. I, it's a Monday, I think. And I'm like, I am going to observe this. And, and I actually came across this article. It was like, here's what you don't do during an eclipse. Don't pull out your phone and take photos. <laughs> right. This is, there are professional photographers that will capture this. You spend the 268 seconds or however long it lasts just enjoying this. Yeah. And you can even get like the special glasses that you can wear that will allow you to look at it. I'm like, that's totally what I'm doing. That's that that happened here in 17, I believe, and all of the kids got into it. I remember my son got glasses and it was a big deal. And um, yeah, that's cool, man. That's very cool. Um, man, I totally lost track. There was something I was going to say and I lost track, <laughs> but I'm going to get back on it. So yeah. what, what I want to know from you now is somebody that's obviously highly driven. Who's been a role model or hero for you in your life? This is going to be an interesting answer. But it's, it's a coach that I had about six years ago. And I think he really transformed. Like he, I, I, obviously I did the work, but his guidance was responsible for a really significant personal transformation in my life. And it really illustrated for me the power of coaching. His name is Scott and Scott doesn't like to any kind of attention or anything like that. He just quietly goes about his business. But what he did for me was one, he didn't give up on me. So I was in this place where I was really struggling with my mental health. I was quite overweight. I, I really hated myself and who I had become and I didn't know how to get myself out of it. And so when I started to hire him, because originally I thought I was hiring a coach to, to lose weight, he showed me a level of compassion that I'd never experienced before, especially from another man. I didn't know, or maybe what I thought compassion was, was like sort of the soft, weak kind of thing, and I would have entirely rejected it. He modeled self-compassion and compassion for me. And because of that, it, it's like why I do what I do today. And so, and I've actually never met him in person. Um, but every year I just touch base with him and I just thank him for the work that he did. And he's very humble. He's worked with probably thousands of people, you know, but that really shone a light for me. And like, this is the power of a genuine, like one-to-one human interaction that one person can have with another person and show them a different perspective and really create transformation in their life. Yeah, that's great. So based on that and, and just what you do, what's a daily motivator? What really gets you out of bed and pulls you through a day? It's funny. What gets me out of bed is my two-year-old. <laughs> right. Now, As legitimately, because he, he, data, get up, data, get up. <laughs> yeah. But every day, so every morning, um, we, we have what we call like morning snuggle time. And that is, you know, a little fella climbs into bed with us and my wife's expecting number two at this point. Um, and we, ha- we have some cuddles and some tickles and whatever. That time is about connecting with the two soon to be three most important people in my life and reminding me like anything that I do, I do not want to lose sight of who I'm doing it for and why I'm doing it. And then we have breakfast together. So we have, now we have just a standard bowl of oatmeal and blueberries because my kid, he calls them boobies, but he loves blueberries. Uh, oh, kids are amazing. Yeah. Um, but that's really what gets me out of bed. You would think maybe it's this big lofty sort of aspirational goal. And I mean, I have some big goals, but really at the heart of it is these people that I love more than like anybody else in this world 
and this is who I'm doing it for. And it's so important that I don't, because I, I, you're right, I'm very driven. I could be a workaholic and I have to remind myself every day, this is who I'm doing this for. Don't lose sight of that. Yeah. So if you can meet anybody alive right now on the planet, who would it be? Who would you spend time with? That's, and I, I was like, I bet you're going to ask this question. This is, here's, I'm not a big, like famous person, person, so I to get speak. That. Sure. But I would, I would really enjoy spending some time with Andrew Yang. Okay. I've heard now, that before. Yeah. I, I, because I feel like, I, I don't know the guy, of course, but I feel like it would be really interesting to sit down and talk to him because he has some unique ideas politically. So he's been successful in business. I believe he's a billionaire, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, He's created his own political party because he doesn't see in the, in the, in the sort of bipolar political paradigm that you have in the US yeah. a, a feasible solution. And so I would love to spend some time just sitting with him chatting about his ideas uh, politically and how he sees that as a possibility. And like I said, I respect him because he's, he's, um, he's been successful in business. And so he understands what it takes to, to be profitable. And I, th- I think governments are immensely wasteful. And so I'd love to just get an hour to hang out with him and pick his brain. So speaking of a successful person like that, what are you the proudest of that you've done in your life up to this point? I'm going to say being a father, because uh, I was thinking about this one as well. And, and and maybe before I was a dad, I would have said something like, I've been to 45 countries, I've lived in yeah. seven countries, I learned to speak five languages, all these sort of like accomplishments. But because of the work that I did, go back to the work that I did with this coach, Scott, before I was ever a dad, it's actually enabled me to be a, a very different father than I would have been, where I'm, again, much more patient, much more compassionate, curious, and present. And I recognize, like, parenthood is this beautiful thing. Like, oh, it's challenging as well. You you, you know, gosh, the kid wakes you up halfway through the night and you're like, just go to sleep, please. Like, you know, but there's something about, like, and, and I watch my wife and his mother, but there's something about being a parent that... It's like we are shaping future human beings. Now, his, his personality is like already predetermined. We're born with like 200 personality traits. They're already like locked in. Yeah. But I, I get to help shape and mold that. And I now have this level of awareness and understanding that I didn't used to have that's allowing me to be a very different father than I would have been. Absolutely. So in the realm of art, what, what, was, what was a book or an album or artwork that really swayed you in your life that just <laughs> opened you up in a different way? This might be a funny one. Yeah. In 1998, I was living in a small town, BC, British Columbia, north of Washington State. And I was listening to the radio as you did back then because we didn't have the internet or we had a very poor version of it. And the song came on and I didn't understand it. It was the song Du Hast by Rammstein. And it was like music as like I'd never heard before. Like I, I obviously had heard of rock, I'd heard metal and things like that, but this was like a different kind of sound and got me awfully curious about it. And what's really fascinating is this, this group of people, people might just look at them as like, I don't know, these sort of over the top theatrical like metal group, but they're actually very, very carefully calculated and artistic in what they do. And, the, and they use that form of music as, as a medium. And so it really showed to me like a different perspective on a genre like metal that might sometimes be dismissed by people as just, you know, the cacophony of noise. And I'm like, this is actually a really fascinating sort of artistic presentation. I'm so glad that they, they stay true and sing in German. The language really fits their music. Uh, they made a song like one or two songs in English and they can speak English, but I'm glad that they st- stayed to that. So for me, I, I actually really enjoyed that, which is funny because I like, I played jazz trumpet in high school. Like, totally yeah, no, that's a, yeah, that's great. And that's the beauty of life is the, all the flavors that go in to, to add up to who we are, which, which leads me naturally into my next question. Everyone has a perception of you, family, friends, clients, colleagues, 
but you live your life. What's your mm. perception of you? Who do you think you are? I have two core values that I really try to live by, and I don't do it perfectly. But I would say I'm a like compassion and integrity. Those are the two that everything else that I do, I really that's my my like measuring stick, if you will. So I try not to measure myself by the opinions of others, but rather by these values that really don't change. And so I see myself as like a kind of like a compassionate engineer. So I have this really unique brain that I got free of charge and I can't take the credit for. But like my dad has like an encyclopedic memory and my mother is incredibly creative artistically. And I kind of got the two melded together. Yeah. And and it's this was and for many, many years I didn't know that I had a unique brain. Like I mean everybody does to some degree. But I did I was I was not even self-aware enough to realize like my brain works very differently than most people's. Yeah. And uh and and when I did learn it, like I learned to sort of hide these things because kids would make fun of me. Because in school, like I, I didn't ever have study, I just went and wrote tests and I didn't know that like, oh, this is supposed to be hard. Like I would just show up and do it. And I and I didn't understand like why doesn't everybody just do this? Yeah. So for most of my life I'd learned to hide that because kids would have made fun of me. They picked on me, all this kind of stuff. And and it took until, again, I go back to working with Scott for me to really start to appreciate like, wow, I really do have this unique ability. And so now as a coach, especially, I think I want to help people like uncover their unique gifts. And so they get to appreciate themselves in a different way as well. So I'm finally at this place where I'm at comfort, like I'm at peace with who I am and I actually like appreciate and value the gifts that I have to offer. And speaking of those gifts you've offered, what's been the best client success story you've ever had? Well, I was thinking about this one, uh, this one lady, and I think she lives in, oh, is there, some, is there a town near you, something hill, right near Kansas, Missouri border? Oh, Mission Hills? Maybe it's, it's somewhere right in around there. Like it, she lives down there and it, I, I don't want her name her in case she hears this. Right. She's very humble, yeah. but she came to me uh, 60 years old. And tried, you know, 40 years of struggling with her weight and all this kind of stuff and just a crazy backstory in terms of how she got to where she is and almost kind of wanting to give up. And somehow she came across some, I know it was her daughter found some piece of content and shared it with her mom and said, you need to talk to this guy. So something I'd shared, she reached out and we worked together for, for probably 18 months, but in the first eight months, she lost about 50 pounds. Wow. And now, so, but for her, she's only five feet tall. That is like a really, really significant result. Yeah. Now she did this while caring for a mother who has dementia and a husband with a heart condition and a daughter. And I don't want to list too many other family details, but under very difficult circumstances while working full time. And so that showed to me where I might have dismissed in the past the potential that maybe someone has. And now I have a bunch of clients in their sixties and I love it. I'm like, this is so exciting that people aren't giving up and just rolling down the other side of the hill when they're over the hill. They're saying there's still more life I want to live. And so crazy thing is more of my clients are like professional women in their fifties and sixties than like, I never thought that's who I'd end up working with. And yet that seems to be who I work with. Yeah. That's wonderful, man. So speaking of clients, if Mm. anyone out there wants to hire you, learn more about you, where can they go? Uh, freedomnutritioncoach.com would be the, the website and you can learn a little bit more about what I do um, in a nutshell for the adults who aren't third graders uh, I say I try to marry the science of metabolism with the psychology of behavior change and the compassion of human connection to create life changing transformations in people wonderful man Jonathan this has been great thank you for opening up it was wonderful to meet you man best of luck with everything thank you man it's truly been a pleasure thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino where we cover the world of art literature business spirituality mental health music and more from around the globe 
Want to hear more interviews? You can find famous interviews with Joe Domino on YouTube. You can subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Ah!